the Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Wednesday morning, the 16th of February. Good morning, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Last week, six car insurance companies and a broker's trade body were probably relieved to to find out that they would not be facing legal action. This is uh, despite an allegation that uh, they had behaved in a way that negatively impacted customers. The Competition and Consumer Protection Commission, the CC, CPC had alleged uh, that uh, the six insurers, AA Ireland, AIG, Allianz, AXA, Aviva and FBD, and uh, that broker's body, Brokers Ireland, had acted in a way that was anti-competitive. Cooperation consisted, they said, of public announcements of future private motor insurance premium rises, as well as other contacts between between competitors, I beg your pardon, and in its report last week, the CPC CCP said it didn't have the power to issue fines to the companies. Let's uh, speak uh, to the Minister of State at the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment with Responsibility for Trade Promotion, Digital and Company Regulation, Finafall TD, Robert Troy, who's on the line. A very good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. You're, you're promising change, uh, but it is change that is being imposed on you by the European Union, is it not? Uh, good morning, uh, Michael. Well, yes, um, last week we introduced into the Dáil the Com- Competition Amendment Bill, uh, which will, for the very first time, ensure uh, the uh, regulatory bodies, the CCPC and Comreg, will have the ability to issue administrative sanctions to uh, companies to feel that are acting in an uncompetitive manner. You gave an example of a recent investigation carried out by the CCPC uh, into the insurance companies, and because um, the legislation wasn't paid up to speed mm. uh, or modernised. They were unable to issue any sanctions. In fact, the only thing they could do was enter a legal agreement with those insurance Well, they had the option, did they not, of uh, taking these companies to court, uh, but I think it was deemed too expensive uh, to prove the case against them. Exactly. Right. You, That's mad, isn't it? Charge, for criminal charges, the burden of proof is a lot higher and mm. um, it's a lot co- more costly and timely to do that with mm. no guarantee of success. So what we have done now, we've introduced... But that's mad, issues. isn't it, Minister? Isn't it mad to think uh, that uh, we're not saying in this case because it would be up to a court to decide whether there was wrongdoing, uh, but if there's a belief that there was wrongdoing, it's more expensive to prove it. Well, what, what we want to do is ensure that we have legislation in place that can deal mm. effectively with a scenario Sure, but, like but, but the, the existing situation, until that legislation uh, is transposed into law, it's a mad situation, isn't it, that it's too expensive to take cases against white-collar criminals? Well, that's why we're bringing in this new legislation, Michael, and we introduced it in the door last week. Oh, I thought it was uh, because already... you had to do it under European law. It, it is part of the European law, but we've actually gone further than what the European law had requested of us. And we have brought this across um, the CCPC, uh, Comreg. Uh, we've introduced other measures that wasn't requested of the, from a European... Across country borders, uh, businesses are operating in many countries. So it is important that we have legislation that is 
mirrored across the European Union. So mm. many businesses are operating, as I said, across many different countries. So it is it is to our benefit uh, that the legislation uh, mirrors what is happening throughout the rest of the European Union. Mm. Uh, do you believe that people are paying more in insurance than they should be because of uh, the way those companies acted? Well, like the, the, the finding of the investigation is quite clear that mm. insurance companies price signalled and they indicated to each other uh, that they were raising prices and what they were raising prices by and that gave them an opportunity uh, to similarly increase their prices. Insurance reform is a very big uh, priority for this this government and that's why Mm. in the last 12 to 18 months a number of major reforms have been introduced. But there's no point in introducing reforms if they're not implemented, is there? Well, we we have introduced uh, reforms that have been implemented. But you've just uh, you've just said that uh, the way those companies were acting uh, was uh, in breach of company law, was it not? In your view, but the, the CCPC is an independent body. Right. Uh, they carried out they carried out their investigation. Hmm. The results of their investigation has been publicised. Hmm. This is uh, and the CC, an old, does the CCPC is saying that they were in breach of company law. Is that right? The CCPC have, have carried out their investigation and their investigation has been publicised yeah. that they, they, they were, they, in their opinion, the price signalled and that is an uncompetitive practice. Yeah. We and breach, and bre- in and breach of company law. We have now brought in legislation that will deal effectively with that okay. in the future. But, I would have rather but, but, that legislation was in... But were the companies to- acting in breach of existing company law? I would have rathered, uh, Michael, if that legislation was in before this. Okay, but but, but no the legislation to deal. With no, I'm not talking about. I'm not, I'm not talking about the existing legislation. I'm talking uh, uh, or the, the the forthcoming legislation. I'm talking about the legislation that pertained when the companies were acting in the way that they were price signaling and, and making contact with each other and so on. Uh, do you believe that that was in breach of company law? The CCPC is the body that, that has responsibility. Do you believe that the CCPC has said that it's in breach of and company law? The CCPC's law? investigation and report is a, a matter of public record. They have said that, in their opinion, following investigation, and I'm not going to second guess an independent body. Why would I? Right. Uh, so, um, what was the point of the investigation? What's the point of the CCPC up until now when you're introducing this new legislation? The CCPC, it is a matter of fact that it didn't have the significant powers that it's needed. Um, legislation is continuously evolving uh, and responding to changes in, in, uh, that is needed, and that is what's happening now. We have introduced new legislation, Michael, for the first time that will give the CCPC the required powers that will be able to issue administrative sanctions to people who uh, behave in an uncompetitive practice, like what has happened. The, but the legislation, was, the legislation was there. There's, that legislation has been there for years, has it not? It hasn't, Michael. Sorry, for the first time. The no, no, no. The, the CCPC will be able to find them or, or, or to issue some sort of sanction. But the legislation preventing that type of cooperation and uh, price signalling between companies has been there for years, hasn't it? If, if I could, if you would allow me, finish my 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 yeah. answer, yeah, yeah, case, Michael, yeah. without inter- interrupting. The simple fact of the matter is the CCPC has the power to investigate. If they believe there is a case to be made, they have the power to refer that for criminal sanctions. Heretofore, there has been no 
mechanism within the CCP to issue administrative sanctions. The burden of proof for criminal sanctions is much higher than administrative sanctions. We have seen that there was a weakness in this area. We have introduced the legislation. It was introduced on the floor of the Dáil last week. It is my intention as the Minister with responsibility for this legislation to ensure that it swiftly progresses through uh, the various stages in the Dáil onto the Shannon and can be referred to the President for signing and brought into law because I want to ensure Mm. that the body that's charged with overseeing this has the required um, uh, power to Mm. ensure that a situation like you have used as an example cannot be repeated again. Companies like was identified in the insurance investigation should not be behaving in an attitude like this. And for the first time, there will be stiff penalties. There will be penalties up to 10 million euro or 10% of the global turnover, whichever is the greater. So we will see, um, number one, a strong deterrent uh, from companies behaving in this uh, practice again. And number two, if they do continue to behave in a practice like this, we will ensure that there is penalties going forward. Okay, you're talking about policing the law. I was asking you about the law, Minister. Um, uh, Has it been uh, illegal? for years to act as a cartel for insurance companies or other companies like that to act as a, a cartel? Yes, but there, yes. there, has, been so no now what? there has been no administrative sanctions, Michael. The, how that was dealt with heretofore was through criminal sanctions. The burden of proof to bring to court is a lot higher than from an administrative perspective. So the law... It's so up, so, up, so what, what does that mean? The law was an ass? I mean, if it was illegal to act as a cartel... What was the point of the law if there was no sanction? It was uncompetitive practices, Michael, and there could be brought to court, but it's down to the bodies like the CCPC to determine whether they have significant evidence to bring it to court because they need to have... to be confident that any case that's brought to court that they would win. In this instance, they felt they couldn't bring it to court. But we are making sure that where there has been a vacuum in the legislation, that this is now being addressed. And as I said, and I repeat, for the, fir- for the first time, we are going to ensure that there will be administrative sanctions in place mm. for the CCPC, for Comreg, that if... if uh, uh, companies are acting in an uncompetitive manner, there will be penalties for the first time. They will be, have the opportunity to issue fines up to 10 million euro or 10% of their global turnover. Mm. But the, the, the initial point I was putting to you, Minister, is that the Irish government has no option in this. You have to do this, don't you? Because that's the directive of the European Union. And the flaws in uh, the policing of the system and the inability of the CCC, the CCPC to uh, administer fines has been highlighted to the Irish government by the European Commission. But it's, it's, you... you, you by saying that has taken a very simplistic approach. The European Commission is made up of uh, representatives from every member state. The directives that come from Europe as part of a process that we feed into. So this is tackling an issue that's across Europe to ensure that there is a consistency in how this legislation is applied across the European board. Yes, it's a directive, but it's a directive that applies to the 27 member states to ensure that each member state's uh, authorities can deal with uncompetitive practices in a unified unified way. In certain instances, we are actually going above what is required of the European Union and this directive. And we are ensuring, as I said, for the first time that we will have um, 
to the bodies, the rep- uh, the uh, bodies, the CCPC mm. and Comreg will have uh, the regulatory powers and the ability to issue sanctions that they didn't have heretofore. Okay, and the CCPC is uh, the consumer regulator, Comreg is the communications regulator. We get a, a lot of pl- complaints, uh, I'm sure you've had a, an awful lot of complaints over the years uh, that uh, have been raised uh, with Comreg and people have wondered why Comreg hasn't got the teeth to deal with those complaints. Will it have the teeth to deal with those complaints and can the same questions be asked in, in the sense of why have we been so uh, slow to give these bodies the powers that they need to do the jobs that they're tasked with? Well, Michael, I've been in office uh, 18 months and it was one of my priorities to ensure that we do give uh, these bodies the powers. Um, Over the last 18 months, there has been an extensive body of work undertaken between uh, my department, between uh, the Department of Communications, which is the parent body for Comreg, uh, between the Office of Attorney General and indeed uh, the, the bodies that, that write legislation to ensure that we did bring forward robust legislation that would give the powers to these bodies. Because, yes, it is a matter of fact that these bodies weren't significantly hadn't the powers heretofore and we needed to address that. And I think it's welcome that uh, this is now being addressed. The legislation was introduced into the door last week and within the next number of weeks we will have progressed this legislation uh, through the Oireachtas. It will be referred to the uh, President and it will be law. Okay. Uh, And uh, another piece of law that might impact on consumers, particularly those uh, who might be paying more than they should be in insurance premiums because of that flaw in the other law uh, will uh, also be brought uh, you're, you're also bringing forward in terms of PIAB uh, the uh, Personal Injuries Assessment Board Yes, as I said insurance has been a very uh, much a priority for this government uh, we've brought in for, uh, forward a number of uh, positive changes in the last uh, 18 months the introduction of the personal injury guidelines that has been implemented by the courts and indeed by uh, PIAB currently. We've introduced perjury on the statute books. We have introduced or opened a, a fraud office within um, Garda Siakana to tackle insurance fraud and we've opened uh, a competition office within the Department of uh, Finance to ensure that um, we can attract greater competition within uh, the insurance industry. Mm. One of the areas that's directly under my responsibility is the Personal Injuries Assessment Board. And what we did last week is we published the heads of bill which will indicate that we we want to broaden the Personal Injuries Assessment Board so that they can deal with uh, more uh, legitimate insurance claims in a more timely and efficient uh, mechanism. And uh, we're going to ensure that cases heretofore of a psychological na- nature were, were unable to be de- dealt with by PIAB they will be able to be dealt with when this becomes legislation. Uh, long cases with injuries that may be carried out over a longer period of time, um, that will be able to be dealt with through PIAB. We're introducing mediation for the very first time uh, to PIAB and we're going to mirror that mediation based on uh, the WRC, the PRTB, where it has proven to work. Uh, it, it, has, it is a proven mechanism to show um, that... Uh, claims can be dealt with through uh, mediation or disputes can be dealt mm-hmm. with through mediation and we're going to also tighten uh, in relation to how uh, the legal fees can be awarded uh, in, in, in successful claims. Alright, now all of that uh, hopefully will help to bring down the cost of insurance premiums for everybody. Uh, you mentioned 
perjury uh, or making false claims. Uh, it's a perjury if you make false claims to the courts, but not to PIAB. And uh, Senator Ronan Mullen has asked you to incorporate that into your act. Is that something that you're considering? Well, we didn't oppose his um, bill going through the Shannon last week. Um, we're going to uh, explore it in, in detail as part of the, uh, the pre-legislative scrutiny that's going to commence now with, with our own legislation. And, and if we feel that it enhances our legislation, we certainly will include it. All right. Uh, Minister, uh, before you leave us, uh, much talk, uh, which I'm sure you're as interested in as anybody else, not just as uh, somebody uh, who goes into shops or public transport or elsewhere for that matter, but as a, a minister with responsibility for business. Uh, restrictions uh, in place, uh, meaning that you have to wear face masks in quite a, a, a lot of uh, areas of uh, society as we speak. Uh, they may be lifted uh, quite soon. Uh, is that your read on things as we speak this morning? Look, at as we have dealt with this pandemic right from the very beginning, uh, we will await what um, the medical advice is uh, and we will respond accordingly. Uh, but we do know that um, face masks, uh, hand, hand hygiene, personal hygiene has been a way that has been used to keep this virus at bay, uh, even if the recommendation is that we lift the mandatory requirement to, to wear face masks in certain settings, that will not prevent anybody who themselves uh, feel more comfortable with wearing a mask. But as from, as I said, from the very beginning, we have followed uh, the medical advice and I don't think we're going to deviate from that at this stage. OK, Minister, thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Minister of State at uh, the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment, Robert Troy, TD. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if uh, you were listening to the programme yesterday, you might have heard me speaking uh, to Jean Andrews about her company, Super Pedestrian, which operates what they say are the safest and smartest e-scooters in the world. And they also claim that if they operated in this country when new legislation comes into play, that they would be able to meet the demands, if you like, of the National Council of the Blind and Ireland, the Irish Guide Dogs Association and uh, the Irish Wheelchair uh, Association for that matter. Uh, And uh, they had uh, a lot of very interesting things to say to us on the programme. But let's uh, hear uh, what uh, the three charities make of that because uh, they've taken a collective position on this. June Tinsley is Head of Communications and Advocacy with the National Council for the Blind. Uh, And I I take it June speaking for the three organisations in response to what we heard yesterday. There was some interesting uh, things in what we heard from Super Pedestrian. Yes, I think you'll agree. Yes, now, to be fair, um, it was heartening to hear some of the work that they want to do to make sure that e-scooters are as uh, safe for riders but also for, for pedestrians. So certainly things that you mentioned yesterday around um, making sure that the um, rider education programmes are rolled out and that they would be mandatory is something we would 100% agree with. Um, Now, implementation of that would pose a challenge, I would foresee. So it would need to be connected with maybe um, the licensing system in order to ensure that only upon completion of the um, an an education rider programme can you get your licence. And I I would also agree with Jean in in the need for um, recommending the use of of helmets Mm. um, and the need for an audio signal to be included in any e-scooter design. Yeah, I thought that would have been easy to do, uh, but it sounded as though it was much more complicated than you'd expect. It is, because I suppose the reality is we need to make sure that that sound is universally accepted and is universally 
tested and scientifically proven to be um, effective in um, alerting pedestrians to. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. That this is an e-scooter approaching. Mm. Uh, now, some uh, e-scooter companies such as Superpedestrian and others are kind of exploring this topic, um, and it is certainly something we would welcome, but it, it needs to be done correctly. We've learned from other um situations in the UK, they did roll out a pilot programme around an, an audio signal and they had to um, retract on it because it just wasn't uh, effective enough. So robust testing needs to be done on this to make sure it is scientifically um, robust and uh, understood that this is the best okay. signal to And that, that might uh, stop people from stepping out onto the road, uh, not realising that one of them was coming. Uh, that's it if uh, they're not on the footpaths, but if they're not on the footpaths, uh, they'd need to be on uh, the roads and uh, we heard from some people yesterday, uh, listeners to the programme, who were saying they'd be reluctant to go out on the roads. Um, and, and I can understand that reluctance because, to be fair, the traffic goes at significant speeds. Um, but I suppose from the perspective of uh, MCBI, Guide Dogs and Irish Wheelchair Associations, we're championing the, the views of uh, pedestrians and to make sure that their safety is not compromised. But, um, and we believe the only way to do that is to ban the use of e-scooters on footpaths mm. uh, because presently um, all our organisations um, members are kind of flagging with us that they've experienced instances or near misses with e-scooters. <laughs> yeah, everybody um, has. I mean, certainly yeah. if the phones were anything to go by yesterday, everybody has. We had so many calls from so many people right. who were so upset about e-scooters and how they have to sort of compete on footpaths with them on a daily basis. But, and I thought this was the most interesting part of what Jean Andrews had to say, she reckons they have the technology which would prohibit the scooters from actually operating on roads so that, or on paths, that if you went up onto the footpath, it wouldn't drive. Yeah, I mean, that technology is there um, and it does play a significant role and it's kind of um, using computer vision technology, different sensors that would detect the, the layout of the different... Um, types of in that space or in a pedestrianised zone. And I think, as I said, technology does have a place to play in this. The challenge with that is, though, e-scooter companies um, will hopefully embed it into their e-scooters. But in reality, this legislation is also going to cover private owners. So will it, will that t- technology be available in private owner scooters? We don't know. And even um, if so you prohibited them for sale, uh, will that uh, go some way to uh, alleviating your concerns? 
Um, I hope so, but I suppose mm. the, the challenge is could it interfere with the EU single market rules if oh, yeah. we um, mm. put in very strict criteria on the, the sale of private e-scooters that they must have this technology. Um, so it, it, those kind of factors need to be considered. So yes, if from the shared schemes that could operate in different cities where people hire the e-scooters, this technology does play a role, but I don't think it should um, be the, the only answer. There needs to be effective safety regulations and clear rules in the legislation around the use of e-scooters, mm. including the ban on footpaths. Uh, have the scooters arrived uh, before uh, we were ready for them? Uh, is, is it too soon? Is the technology uh, too young? Uh, uh, and uh, are we in a, a, a game of catch-up at this stage? Um, well, I think we are in a bit of a game of catch-up because we're, we're, the prevalence of e-scooters is, is so common at the minute um, and the legislation is there. It's totally absent. So there needs to be kind of rules and governance governance around the use of e-scooters. Technology will always evolve. So I think we can only use the technology that's there presently. And as um, it evolves, then so too will the design of of e-scooters. But we shouldn't wait until we have the the perfect um, situation because that will never happen. We do need the legislation to be passed quickly and robustly and comprehensively. And in tandem with that, it needs to be appropriately enforced and rider behaviour needs to be influenced through education um, and the different uh, programmes that can be offered in that space. Mm. And what about the speed? Uh, you were saying between 6 and 12 kilometres. Generally speaking, 12 kilometres should be the maximum speed, but around schools and other places, 6 kilometres. Uh, Jean Andrews was saying that wouldn't work really in reality because you wouldn't get up hills and there would be other times where you'd need more power in the bikes. Um, and yeah, no, I, I heard what she was kind of saying and I suppose from our perspective we're kind of flagging it from a best practice perspective um, and a, a safety perspective of the riders and um, realising that often when people are kind of stalled in traffic having scooters zooming past at 20 and 25 kilometres is, is excessive in our view. Um, other European countries have had scaled back their speed limits down to 15 so um, by us advocating for, for 12 we believe that we can kind of find a happy medium um, and move towards best practice. Okay. Overall, though, um, you're um, pretty much uh, in the same position uh, you would have been anyway. The three organisations uh, would continue with that call for 6 to 12 kilometres maximum speeds uh, and uh, the other issues about uh, the sound and uh, legal prohibition, uh, making it illegal to ride these scooters on footpaths. Uh, yes, those issues and also kind of having designated parking bays so um, yeah. that it's, there's no opportunity for these scooters to be haphazardly parked or potentially pose um, a trip hazard for anybody who's blind or vision impaired or um, uh, anybody with mobility needs on, on the footpath. So um, we believe that those provisions should be enshrined in legislation along with making sure that there's clear licensing um, and a minimum age of 16. OK, we leave it there for the moment. Uh, interesting, uh, actually, that uh, thing about the age, because uh, I think a lot of people were in touch with us yesterday talking about 10 and 12-year-olds cycling or, or scooting around their estates, whatever the proper term is, free scooters, yeah. but driving them uh, around their housing estates uh, and very dangerously by all accounts. Uh, and that does seem to be quite a, a common practice. Um, mm. And I suppose from the rider safety perspective, we need to make sure that they're wearing helmets and have high-vis and all that kind of mm. um, systems on them. But in, in reality, we would favour a system where the rider should not be younger than 16. So you could have a licensing system in place, um, which again could be linked in with the, um, making sure they are avail of the education programmes 
which I hope will be rolled out and designed. Mm. Um, NCBI certainly can play a role in that to ensure that um, riders are aware of the vulnerability of uh, different pedestrians. Yeah. And understanding the rules of the road, <laughs> you yeah, know, exactly. who was right away and that sort of thing, because you see an awful lot of dodgy things and uh, they are small, I suppose, uh, by the nature of uh, scooters uh, and perhaps uh, they're escaping accidents as a, a result of uh, their size, but uh, it's only a question of time, I think. June, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Much appreciated. That's uh, June Tinsley, who's Head of Communications and Advocacy with the National Council for the Blind. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to hospital parking charges. Let's go to Padder Tobin, founder and leader of the Ain't Two Party and a TD for Meath West. Uh, good morning to you. Thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, you're introducing legislation uh, that you're hoping to get support for, which would make it free for outpatients to park at hospitals. Many of your listeners uh, will have got really bad uh, diagnosis uh, in their lives. Many of them will remember getting maybe diagnosis uh, for cancer, for heart disease, for stroke, uh, mental health issues, etc. And, you know, when people have those diagnoses, they them, the diagnoses are earth-shattering for themselves and their families. But also, what people often forget as well is that there's a big uh, financial impact on those illnesses on people uh, as well. Um, and the Irish Cancer Society estimates that it can cost around €800 Euros, rising to €1,200 um, per month in certain circumstances uh, for people who have cancer. And this can include, obviously, the, the very long journey that they make to and from treatment. Uh, it can include hotel and B&B overnights that are necessary to access treatment. And it can even include, let's say, child-minding costs. And that doesn't even take into consideration that a person who has a serious illness also typically faces an income drop um, and the Irish Cancer Society also estimates that an average uh, person with cancer will see a €1,400 month drop in their income um, while they have the particular illness. So we know that obviously many people are are hit massively with with, with the illness and they're hit massively with the financial cost. Mm. And I'm actually aware of in University Hospital in Galway, um, they have, let's say, free parking charges for patients for 20 minutes. But what people see there is that, you know, every 20 minutes, people are getting up out of their seats in the waiting rooms and going down to their cars and driving them in and out to avail of the free parking. So this is a serious mm. issue for me. I think a lot of hospitals have uh, discounted rates uh, for cancer patients, though, don't they? Yeah, there has been a campaign over, yeah. over the years by the Irish Cancer Society uh, with regards to discounted rates. And actually, there's about 12 hospitals now that do provide uh, discounted rates uh, for patients. Uh, throughout the state. But what the AIM2 bill simply looks to do is it looks to guarantee uh, free hospital parking charges for outpatients Mm. as they attend uh, maybe issues such as radiotherapy or chemotherapy, uh, etc. And the the free parking charges will will make life easier for them in many ways. For all outpatients, though. I mean, it's not just cancer patients. For all outpatients. Um, And Mm -hmm. the question is... If you were going to the fracture clinic... Well, yeah, so we don't believe that we should Mm. tax illness uh, in this country, and and that's what this is. So what what hospitals did, in in effect, over the years was to shore up a lack of funding from the state. Mm. They looked at other income streams that they could bring in. So, you know, a number... Yeah, but, I mean, you'd need to find about €20 to shore up this income stream if you were to take it away from the HSE, wouldn't you? Yeah, we we, we would need to... Well, the the PQ that we put in to find out how much uh, public hospitals were earning from parking charges in 2020 was €12 million. Euros. Mm. 
Uh, now, that's obviously uh, not a normal year because in 2020, obviously, a significant level of healthcare uh, fell off because of, of, of COVID. Uh, but, to, you know, between 12 and 20 million euros is the shortfall of this. Yeah, now, because that figure of 12 million doesn't include the likes of Vincent's or James's or Tala or Bowmount, uh, huge hospitals. These are the public hospital yeah. system, mm. is, is the 12 million euros. It, 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 it doesn't include the private uh, hospital system, which obviously is outside the scope of, the, of this particular bill. Um, so the so what do you do to get that twenty million? Do you cut services? No, what you do is you invest uh, uh, funding from the state through taxation into hospital services. So listen, so w- we agree that we need that twelve million euros for services. Mm. So the question then comes: Is it fairer to take that uh, from the tax system, or fairer to place it on a, a person who's lost fourteen hundred euros in uh, income? or who is now finding uh, they have extra bills of about 800 euros. Okay, but that wouldn't be the point. Uh, that, that wouldn't be the case with somebody who's gone to the fracture clinic. Uh, and uh, the people that you're talking about, uh, I think, are cancer patients. Uh, and as you said, yeah. most hospitals it's offer it's reduced rates to them anyway. Uh, yeah. And then you've got the problem of differentiating between visitors uh, uh, and uh, people who are, are going to outpatient clinics or people who are going to emergency, should they have the, to pay part? The, the A2 bill actually provides, and, and purely for the entitlement, uh, and it's very clearly stated in it, for either the passenger or the driver who is attending a hospital to receive an outpatient service. So it's, it's very, very clear in, in it that it's, it's not a person who's just simply visiting the hospital for the day uh, or a person who's, um, who is visiting uh, for any other reason. You know, many people will, if you have a fractured arm, you won't be driving, you'll need a person to drive you there. So mm. uh, in that case, it's the driver or the passenger uh, that's attending the hospital to receive an, an outpatient service. And we're very... We, there'd we be a cost to that, though, as well, wouldn't there? That you'd have to add on to that 20000000 million. There'd be a cost in administrating all of that. Well, first of all, because we're only looking at outpatient services for people with cancer uh, and for other illnesses, and uh, including fractures, we're not including all parking here. So that's 12 million mm. euros. Uh, it wouldn't be consumed in its entirety with regards to the provision of this service. Mm. So actually, we're, we're talking... But the administration, as you say, you're not talking about all patients, so you'd have to have somebody who would look at the parking and say, well, you're free, you're not free, and so on. So that, that in itself would be a job of work. But what, simply what you would do is that you would... Like, and currently in many hospitals, what they do is they, uh, they can... Uh, scan your parking pass, uh, your card uh, before you leave the hospital, uh, and that can then obviously open the mm. uh, the gate for you. And of course, it's a job of work, but it's not nuclear science we're talking about here. In fairness, you know what I mean. It's it, this is within the bands of current technology in in all current hospitals uh, in relation to this. Now we we have provided uh, only three hours of free parking as well because there, you know people have said to us you know that if you if we provide Unlimited free parking. Some people might just leave their car there, head down the town, and, and do their shopping, etc. And we don't want to allow for that. We don't want to uh, allow for uh, the parking to be abused. And we have allowed for if there is a situation where the parking becomes unmanageable in the hospital, uh, that the the uh, section can be suspended uh, until uh, it's resolved. But you know, there's, if you're an elected rep, uh, Michael, you'll know that it is the bane of so many patients who are sick in mm. this country mm. and that car parking charges were brought in and are eating into money that many people don't have and especially at this, at this time uh, of a cost of uh, you know the cost of living crisis that people are under I think it would be logical to try and focus some of that money 
towards the people who most need it. You mentioned, obviously, the, the, the cost to the exchequer. The government is providing a, a financial uh, support, thankfully, for people who are suffering from the cost of living crisis. But it's also providing that support to people who are on very high incomes, people like Michael O'Leary, etc., who actually don't want it. So, you know, the government wastes a lot of its resources in terms of uh, helping people as it currently stands. Uh, and, you know, aim to as well have uh, many, many policies with regards trying to make the health service far more efficient. We believe that uh, there needs to be a stronger uh, internet system uh, and uh, a stronger computer system, ICT system uh, within the health service. Uh, we know for a fact that, you know, one of the difficulties in rolling out vaccines, for example, in this state, uh, was the fact that we don't have a single IT system okay. patient number mm. in this country. But I take it Michael O'Leary is going to have to pay for all this, is he? Well, no, this is this will be paid for. I, I don't think Michael would mm. uh, would be sit back quietly. No, but I mean, you happen. you mentioned uh, Michael O'Leary, so uh, I presume that's uh, the uh, type of uh, person, uh, if not him specifically, that you're talking about who will no, uh, shore up this twenty million loss, uh, as well as introduce all of these new uh, pieces of uh, infrastructure and uh, technology and all of that. Well, first of all, we in Aintu believe that the health service should be paid for on the basis of needs through taxation. And um, I think that's the, 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 uh, pretty much the understood way to, to pay for health services right through most of Europe. Uh, we think that the idea that the government you know, didn't provide enough funding for hospitals and as a result forced hospitals to go down this extra uh, revenue stream was a mistake. Mm. And okay. it's actually hurting the people uh, who um, are, are most vulnerable in, in terms of, of their health and of their income. Okay. The whole idea of a progressive... It's a, it's a lot of money out of, out of a budget of £21 billion, I suppose. It's not all that much. Uh, but we leave it there for the moment and thank you thank indeed you for much. joining us as always. That's uh, Patrick Bain of AIN2, a TD for Mead West. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's talk uh, about uh, the heavy gang. Uh, the heavy gang uh, will be familiar to a lot of our older listeners and there's been a lot of interest in the heavy gang amongst our younger listeners, I'm sure, as a, a result of a North EA documentary recently. The behaviour of uh, the heavy gang is an issue that was raised by Sinn Féin in the Dáil last night. During the 70s and 80s, the murder squad or the heavy gang or whatever you want to describe it as travelled around this state when requested. They operated collectively and they often taught collectively. They formed a consensus. Sometimes it was the right conclusion, but other times, and too many occasions, they were wrong. Sometimes their conclusions were outrageous, sometimes malicious, sometimes laughable if the consequences weren't so tragic for the families and for the people that they arrested. Lives were left ruined People were left tortured. And in Anne Donnelly's case, who came into this, uh, she was sitting up there last week, her husband was arrested, charged, convicted on appeal, but her brother had no second chance. He was arrested and he was killed as a result of what happened. Uh, The government was aware of it at the time, but it turned a blind eye. One former minister in the programme described the methods of this gang. They did the right thing if the unorthodox thing. I'm asking you, Minister, to commit to the families to include their family, their loved ones in a statutory investigation, to acknowledge the wrong, 
to meaningfully apologise on behalf of the state, to explain how it happened and to make recommendations so that we can learn and ensure that it does not reoccur. Sinn Féin's Pa Daly. Now, Darren O'Rourke had uh, some questions to ask uh, about how the presence of the heavy gang was felt, felt locally. I want to raise the case of the murder of Una Linsky in 1971 at Porterstown Lane outside Ratoth in County Meath in my own constituency. It was the first and the oldest case in the recent RTE Crime and Confessions programme. The case destroyed a number of families. Ms Linsky was 19 years old when she was murdered. The case remains unresolved. The Guard investigation into the murder of Ms Linsky did not deliver justice. It delivered a miscarriage of justice in the case of Martin Conley. Dick Donnelly had his conviction overturned on appeal. Marty Kerrigan was killed. These families have been failed. There are many unanswered questions all these years later, 50 years later. Minister James Brown was responding on behalf of the government. In relation to the Unilinsky case, the events of 50 years ago in Rathort County Mead were a horrific tragedy, and I would like to express my deepest sympathies to the families of both Unilinsky and Martin Kerrigan, whose families continue to suffer so many years after their murders. As the deputies will be aware, Martin Conmey received an apology from the then Minister for Justice on behalf of the state in 2016, and I welcome the further written apology which the Garda Commissioner has provided to Mr Conmey uh, with regard to the miscarriage of justice which he suffered. The Garda Serious Crime Review Team will be carrying out a review of that case this year. I hope that this review will help to bring some closure to all of the families involved in that case. Any further actions which may need to be taken can be considered upon the completion of the serious crime review team. Right, and that's uh, the Minister James Brown. There were many questions asked uh, about uh, the heavy gang. We'll hear some more now from Sinn Féin's Pa Daly. Uh, because it's the case that I'm most familiar with, I just want to raise the Kerry Babies case. The initial inquiry was a total whitewash. And while that Hayes, Ms Hayes, Joanne Hayes and her family were vindicated through a settlement in the state, there is a number of outstanding issues. One is the apology did not go far enough. For the guards to say that uh, the investigation fell far short of the standards uh, of a police investigation, uh, that must be the understatement of this century. Uh, the it has never been explained, as their solicitor, Mr Patrick Mann, has often said, how was it that five or six members of the same family in different rooms in one guard station all made statements that could not possibly have been true. That needs to be explained. It needs to go beyond an apology and explain how did that happen. Miss Hayes does not have confidence in probably any investigation, but it's important that she gets an answer. And this is what the Minister had to say about the Kerry Babies case. Uh, in relation to the Kerry Babies case, as the deputies will be aware, there remains an active guard investigation in place with regard to the Kerry Babies in that context, it would not be appropriate for me to comment in any detail on what is an ongoing guarding investigation. I believe that Joanne Hayes was very badly and wrongly treated by the institutions of our state. And that time would like to reiterate at this opportunity the apology made by the then Taoiseach to Ms Hayes in 2018 for the terrible ordeal that her and her family endured 30 years ago. Investigating Gardaí continues to believe that there are members of the public who have information in relation to the death of baby John in April 1984. And I join with Angarda Shikona in appealing to those people to come forward and contact the Killarney Garda Station, the Garda Confidential Line, or indeed any Garda Station in relation to this matter. Thank you, Right, and uh, younger listeners are, are probably scratching their heads wondering what all this stuff is about as if it's out of uh, some sort of historical 
uh, movie or something like that. Uh, but of course, uh, these are just some of uh, the issues that uh, we've all lived through. Uh, here's a, a, another one that was raised by Sinn Féin's Martin Kenny. That, look, take the, the case of, the, of this callous silence train robbery and, and the victims in that particular case. What, what we have here is we have a crime that's been investigated and in the investigation of that crime, it is the view of anyone logically looking at it that another crime was committed and nothing was done about it. And that's what needs to be investigated. You also still talk about the cost of these things. I have spoken to a number of people, including a man from my own constituency, who was a victim of this particular murder squad, the squad that came down. They beat him and tortured him for three days. And then, after he didn't sign a confession, he took the state to court and he got a settlement of over €100,000. And there's numerous other people similarly. And part of that settlement was that there was a non-disclosure that he'd say nothing about it. And there are dozens of similar Thank cases. So the cost of all of that down the decades is mountain, mountain up. Yes, yes. So Thank we you. need to ensure that we have a full commission of inquiry into this and make sure that we get to the bottom of it. Because we simply have no credibility in this space. All, right. all right, and let's go back uh, to the Minister for the final word on this. In relation to the silence train robbery, as the deputies will be aware, the silence train robbery case relates to an offence that was committed over 45 years ago. The events in question culminated in the overturning of the convictions of two persons by the courts in 1980 and a pardon for a particular individual in 1992. All right, uh, that's uh, Minister James Brown giving the government's response uh, to the three Sinn Féin TDs who raised uh, the issues relating to the heavy gang in the Dáil last night. Uh, let's go to the phones and some of uh, the comments coming to us. Uh, Tom Dundalk has been listening to the conversations we've been having on the programme today and yesterday about e-scooters. Tom says it's encouraging that companies are working on e-scooters that essentially wouldn't be able to work if they were on footpaths. This could be the way forward. Presently, there are they are very dangerous. Uh, and Tom says uh, that as an enabled-bodied person, it must be very difficult for those who have uh, sight or walking difficulties. Indeed, Tom, thank you indeed uh, for taking the time to tell us. A lot of people actually have been in touch with us about e-scooters. Uh, some comments uh, that have come to us through Facebook, one of uh, the social media platforms uh, that LMFM has. You'll find us across all of uh, the usual uh, social media sites. Uh, Jacinta on Facebook saying e-scooters are a curse, a danger to everyone. Stay off the footpaths. The same for cyclists. I'm sick of dodging cyclists on footpaths. You can't hear them coming up behind you. Cyclists scare me. Thank you, Jacinta, for that. Uh, Declan on Facebook too says no high vis. The majority don't have lights on paths and don't slow down when they're near uh, cars uh, or where cars are pulling out like petrol stations. Literally come zooming past and they're on top of you before you can even see them. In Declan's opinion, there are too many who are irresponsible, who are using the e-scooters. Thank you, Declan, uh, for sharing that with us as well. Grania in Drogheda has been on the phone to us and Grania wonders, should we really be thinking about ending the mandatory wearing of face masks in shops and on public transport because COVID is still here. It hasn't gone away and she thinks we should wait until the numbers drop more significantly. Thanks, Grania. I don't know if they're going to drop uh, the mandate uh, to make it a requirement to wear them. Uh, I think if they do, they're going to advise you to wear them. I think if that's the case, most people won't wear them. Uh, And I think that there'll probably be a number of people who'll be reluctant to go into shops or otherwise uh, where they might do now if everybody's wearing masks. People feel more comfortable, I think. I don't know what they're going to do, but it does look as though there's going to be a change. Uh, Lorraine uh, in touch through Facebook as well. She says uh, that it should be 
personal responsibility at this stage in relation to face masks. If you want to wear them, then by all means do. And the same goes if you don't. Thank you uh, for sharing that with us, Lorraine. Um, we'd a uh, number of comments about face masks, actually. Joanne has been in touch with us too, and she says it's too soon to get rid of the masks in public places. She wouldn't feel safe in shops if people weren't mar- wearing masks. Thank you as well for uh, sharing that with us today. We'd Mary Andrade in touch with us about e-scooters. Uh, and Mary says, I have a friend who had two cars and they got rid of one of the cars. Her husband bought an e-scooter instead, which he now uses to get to the bus and he brings it with him on the bus and he commutes to Dublin and then he uses it to get to his place of work. There are benefits to it. There absolutely are, Mary. There's no doubt about it. If they could work in a way uh, that works for everybody, if you know what I mean, I, I think they'd be absolutely fantastic. Uh, but I, think, I hope he's wearing a helmet. I see so many people going around without helmets and they're going pretty fast, it seems. Uh, somebody else says, can you ban scramblers and quad bikes again as well? as e-scooters uh, noise hazards uh, the whole lot of them uh, that's uh, Jerry in Wilkinstown um, thanks Jerry. got your other message as well but you've forgotten what we showed you about sending in messages under different names with the same telephone number <laughs> but we got it Jerry. Um, Paddy Duffy says we've two political parties masquerading as centrists parties from the foundation when in fact both are centrist right parties and one of them is going further right as time passes by just in case you don't know which parties I'm talking about um, it's Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. God that's a surprise Paddy uh, light touch regulation and the market will provide all says Paddy. Uh, somebody else uh, saying uh, Typical of government ministers not giving a, a straight answer. Uh, there's uh, too many uh, ways uh, of people uh, getting away with white-collar crime. Thank you indeed if you have been in touch with us. If uh, you're one of the people who have been in touch with us so far today, great to hear from you. And thank you, as I say, for your call or your text or your message on social media, as the case may be. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. We're going to go uh, around the world. British amnesty and uh, investigations into crimes that happened in the north of Ireland and indeed uh, that happened in uh, the Republic, for that matter, that are being investigated by John Boucher, uh, who was in front of the US House of Representatives yesterday. In Operation Canova, as far as I can... Um, establish it and and we have access into MI5, into the military and into the PSNI, direct access. Uh, It's something I insisted upon, having spoken to a lot of those who previously led legacy investigations. We are getting the access to the material that others did not receive. Now, I think it's, it's realistic to suggest that some of that access that wasn't provided years ago was because of the proximity of those investigations to the conflict. And there was a lot of people in those organisations, leading those organisations, who were affiliated to a side of the conflict. And therefore, um, they made it hard to get the material. And my experience has often been that the lawyers who represent those specific organisations whose job it is to protect those organisations, not to help me or to necessarily help the families or to get justice. They work for those organisations. And I don't criticise them. They they present a barrier to getting that material. And half of my battle has been to get past the lawyers to get that information. And I will say that in all of the 
uh, investigations I'm doing, we are now getting that flow of material. However, it didn't happen straight away. And I'll be reporting probably during this calendar year around some of those challenges. And indeed, I'm sure there were many challenges uh, because John Boucher is investigating an awful lot of legacy killings. John Boucher is a former chief constable uh, who's in charge of Operation Canova, which you heard him mention. And under Operation Canova, he's currently investigating in around 90 murders uh, that happened uh, during uh, the Troubles. Uh, as he said, getting... Uh, some sort of cooperation in terms of what happened and indeed how those cases were dealt with has been difficult and there's been a lot of complaints over the years about how difficult it has been to get information particularly from the British who are talking about this amnesty now which would stop investigations like his plus would stop prosecutions for that matter but uh, as you also heard him saying there is some good news in that that seems to be changing he claims. But It is my assessment that the leaders of MI5, the Director General, the Chief Counsel of PSNI and the leadership in the uh, Ministry of Defence are now ensuring that we get the access that um, the families deserve and legally that those authorities are required to give. And I spoke with uh, Rennie Pomerantz, who was Judge Corey's deputy, and a lot of the a lot of the misgivings come from the way investigations were treated and responded to previously. So Judge Corey, I know, and he spoke about it publicly, their files were actually taken when they were in London because the authorities felt that Judge Corey didn't have his... um, didn't have sufficient security in place to hold such sensitive information. Now, call me old-fashioned, but I think the best thing would have been to speak to Judge Corey and help him with his security rather than take his files away. Fortunately, he'd back material up. Um, John Stevens, I speak to regularly. He's a good supporter of Canova who conducted three inquiries that Mark referred to. Two of those reports that he did, which I've read all of these reports, still remain at top secret. Now, material in those reports predominantly is not sensitive. It should be released. And we've got to get past this culture of information retention uh, and secrecy. And I remember speaking to Judge Smithick, who conducted inquiries as a result of Judge Corey's work. And Judge Smithick said to me, John, when does something stop being a national security issue? And all of these historical challenges, I do think there is an emerging opportunity. There is an acceptance with a lot of people in senior roles in these organisations that hold the material that may offer an opportunity to actually properly investigate these legacy cases. But because of the time that's passed, This, I think, could be a last chance saloon. 
And last chance saloon. That's uh, John Boucher. Let's uh, speak uh, to Margaret Irwin, uh, who's the coordinator with uh, the Justice for the Forgotten Group. Good morning to you, Margaret, and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, John Boucher, somebody uh, who's very important to you. I mentioned uh, the 90 murders or so that he's investigating at uh, the moment. It started off uh, with uh, crimes related to steak knife and IRA uh, moles and, and so on but that's been extended out since to Seamus Ludlow and to the Glenn gang and many of uh, the issues uh, that you've been campaigning on for so long. That's right yes um, it's known um, the Glenn series of killings uh, is known as Operation Denton which is part of Operation Canova and uh, Mr. Boucher and his team have been investigating. Well, I think it's actually in relation to Operation Denton. It's uh, about 120 murders he's investigating, in fact, both north and south of the border. Mm. OK, and interesting to hear what he, he was saying uh, to the U.S. House of Rent Representatives uh, yesterday. Uh, uh, that uh, committee is working to bring a, about a change to that British policy of introducing uh, this amnesty. Uh, what did you hear Mr Boucher say there in relation to that? Because he seems uh, to be uh, confident uh, that he's getting more cooperation now than previously, but obviously concerned uh, about how he was stonewalled in the past and when uh, items were deemed to, to be issues of national security. Yes, he's uh, he's very uh, confident that he's getting the uh, relevant material uh, from all the agencies uh, in Britain and indeed the PSNI, and uh, that's very positive. But of course, if this new legislation is uh, implemented, uh, this this could um, this investigation could be halted. Uh, as indeed uh, could the uh, police ombudsman's investigations, well, they would be, not could, mm. if, the, in, if the legislation um, proposed in the command paper last July by Brandon Lewis, if that is implemented, that could see an end to all of these cases. Inquests and all court yes, cases. absolutely. Yeah. Coronial inquests, civil yeah. cases, police ombudsman and also Operation Canova. And what's your understanding then of John Boucher's ongoing investigations? Would they just then be shelved? Well, we don't know that. I mean, it depends uh, when and if the um, legislation is implemented. Um, It was supposed to be um, brought forward in uh, the House of Commons last October. That hasn't happened. Uh, It was to be brought forward in January, I think, and that hasn't happened. So now we're in the middle of February. So by the time it would get through Parliament, the inquiries might be too well advanced. Uh, That's what we're hoping anyway, that it it would be very difficult to close them down if they were so far advanced. Mm. Yeah, uh, you'd wonder what the British attitude to all of this is, uh, whether it's to bring about some sort of understanding uh, and closure for people, which is what they claim, or if it's to shut down uh, the questions that are being asked. Oh, it's absolutely to shut down the questions um, that that are being asked. Um, 
they are um, they they plan they claim that it's just to protect their veterans, but uh, of course um, there is a far more pressing uh, reason we believe as to why they want to close everything down. Uh, they're they're greatly alarmed, for example, by the findings of the Bally Murphy inquest, uh, the Patrick McElhone inquest, and the, the police ombudsman's reports into the murders in Loch and Ireland, and the more recent um, release of uh, police ombudsman reports into uh, police handling of loyalist paramilitary murders in the northwest and uh, also police handling of loyalist paramilitary murders in South Belfast which was uh, which was published last week so i think the the british are greatly alarmed at this and they certainly don't want uh, any more of this information to be revealed mm, yeah uh, and I, I think there's uh, people right uh, across uh, this part of the world who would agree with that uh, but that viewpoint extends to America and uh, the way the House of Representatives uh, have uh, been hearing from John Boucher and others yes and indeed this ongoing debate over there is that of encouragement to you? Yes it absolutely is and in fact uh, I myself uh, on behalf of Justice for the Forgotten and the Pat Finucane Centre who is our parent organisation, I submitted uh, a, a statement yesterday to the Tom Lantos Human Rights Commission um, so that they will have that. I've already sent it to them. So they, they're asking for, they've invited certain um, people to submit written evidence and uh, I have done that uh, yesterday. Uh, it's to give uh, really a perspective of how it would affect the families we represent in the Republic. Okay. Were you surprised by what John Boucher had to say uh, about uh, how it may be possible to get prosecutions, but that might not be the best solution, uh, that there could be a need for caution in some cases? He, he was saying that it might be better to step away from the criminal justice process in some circumstances because uh, of how it could prove detrimental to some people because of uh, the circumstances of how their loved ones died uh, and where they live in the community. Yes, well, um, I think in any case it's going to be very difficult to get any criminal prosecutions. Uh, So, um, I mean, the the families we represent by and large are certainly not pursuing criminal uh, prosecutions. They just want to get to the truth of what happened. Yeah, Uh, answers mean justice. Yes, absolutely. Okay, Margaret, we leave there. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. Always nice to talk to you, Margaret. Margaret Irwin, coordinator for the Justice for the Forgotten Group. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Irish Vape Vendors Association was in front of uh, the Oireachtas Health Committee yesterday and uh, they were asked uh, a number of questions, including why is it that they're targeting young people? I wouldn't agree that the products are for the majority of products aren't geared towards younger people. Um, I do think that that the majority of products on the market today do have quite responsible packaging. Now there are some that definitely need to be worked on and we are all for working towards better regulations um, in this. In terms of the flavouring being attractive to youths, 
that's not, I, I don't agree that that's purposeful. Sorry, what do you mean by that? I mean that adults are also like those flavours in a variety of things and not just vaping. Okay, but Ms O'Connell, on your own uh, website, the um, Vapor Pal online retail outlet, you sell products uh, with cartoon-like packaging. For example, uh, Vampire Vape e-liquid. That surely doesn't appeal to adults. We, Why, well, we don't. How would you do that? We, we have never sold to under-18s. These products, especially Vampire Vape, and we only stock very few flavors. We only stock the flavors that our adult customers request. But, but no, the, the, I don't know any adults who would be attracted by a cartoon like packaging like that. They're not attracted by the packaging, they're attracted by the flavor. That specific flavor that you're speaking of that's on our website is one of the most popular fruit flavored e-liquids among adults. Uh, do, we have you, customers do you agree who are, that it's cartoon-like packaging? Pardon? Do you agree that it's cartoon-like I cartoon -like do agree with it that it's cartoon-like packaging and we have been on to the manufacturer um, regarding that. But our customers do request it. We have 60 and 70-year-old men and women who use that particular flavour. And as I said, we do not and never have sold to anybody under the age of 18 since we've opened our doors. So, so maybe you'd outline to us how you ensure that you're not selling to under 18s. We, at the minute, we have a customer who comes in the door that looks under the age of 25. We ask them for ID. If they do not have ID, we do not serve okay. them. How does that work on your out, online uh, outlet? Well, online they have to use a debit card to pay. Yeah. Um, how do you establish that they're not under 18? We have, we have the warning as you go into our website asking whether the customer is over 18. Um, we also, if we have any suspicions, most of our customers are long-term customers. Our web business isn't very large. Um, most of our customers on the web are customers from our stores who live okay, outside but, but, of the town. But, if but isn't we have, it the case that you have no way of establishing a person's age, whether they're under or over we, age? Online, we do our uh, very best to establish age. If we have any inkling that a customer could be under 18 if we don't recognize the customer we will always follow up by contacting the customer before we send out and how would you have an inkling if somebody's buying it because online? as i said we know the large majority of our customers we know these are customers from our shop who don't live near the town so sometimes they order online our online business is not large we don't have an awful lot of orders we don't focus on our online business. Our main business is our stores. That's Joanne O'Connell. Uh
giving evidence uh, to the Erectus Health Committee. Uh, let's uh, talk uh, to Declan Connolly, Director with Irish Vape Vendors Association and owner of EasySmoke.ie. Good morning to you, Declan, and thanks for joining us. I'm sure you'll agree that made for uh, uncomfortable listening. Uh, not very convincing uh, in terms of people who might be concerned that uh, this is being sold, your products are being sold to people under the age of 18. I think uh, as uh, the committee hearing went on, uh, you suggested that parents might police it. Um, that was something that um, that was something that uh, Roshan Shortall had, uh, had had mentioned when <clears throat> when I said that um, as I said, all, all all our policies and uh, you know since, since the Irish Bay Fenders uh, since we set it up back in 2014, we, we one one of our um, one of our one of the bases in our code of conduct is that uh, we would not sell to uh, to those under under eighteen years of age. Mm. And even back then, we wrote to the, you know we're, we're going back sort of seven eight years ago. We wrote to government the government at the time, you know, requesting that they bring in uh, over 18s legislation. And of course, yeah, we're 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 now we're now very happy to see that this is uh, that this legislation is soon going to be brought in. It should be brought brought in much, much sooner. Yeah, but, but the point the, the, in, the in, point in, the point I was putting to you was that you can go on as we heard a moment ago uh, and order your vaping material uh, it's sent to you uh, and there's nothing anybody can do to verify the age uh, you were suggesting that the parents would be asking questions of the children and that's why Roshi and Shorthall said yeah, are, you, are you expecting the parents to police it? Well as I said um, you know, the what, what, I, what I would say, yeah, as I said, the, the, these products—they're not—they're not—they're um, they're not for those under eighteen. For, they're for—they're for, for adult smokers lo- looking to quit. But to get back to your your question there, I said, you know, we, you know, so we do have a an age verification system on the on the website. And as I said at the hearing there yesterday, uh, you know, I would accept that it's not it's not a hundred hundred percent foolproof. But what we do in our, in, in our situation is that um, any package that goes out by post or by D- DPD, certainly uh, we we put a stamp on it, you know. So if a package comes in through the it comes in through the door, you know, um, it has and it has the easy smoke.ie stamp on it. You know, it's easy to know what the, what's inside that what's inside that that, that that product or inside that package. You know, so yeah. So no, I. So in some respects, yes. Uh, and we have had one or two phone calls o- over the years from from parents that oh, where did this package come from? So it's not a foolproof method, but mm-hmm. it works very well. Um, now I would also add that um, you know on our on our website, you know, when when people sign up, they have to. You we don't allow guest checkout. You know, we want to make sure that the person ordering this product is the person who that that that, that it's that it's that it's going to. So and uh, so customers do enter their uh, their their, age, their date of birth when they when when they register with the website. And and the average uh, the average age of our customers is thirty seven years of age. You don't know that. Um, I don't know for sure, but, with, but most of our customers <laughs> yeah. are, repeat, so, are repeat customers. Mm. And over the years, we do actually get to meet a lot of our customers. You and know, these 37-year-olds, the, 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 uh, do they like uh, the vampire uh, vape e-liquid in cartoon packaging as much as Joanna's customers? Um, they, they do. I mean, we, we sell that. Now, I, we... we I, 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 I will admit that there are some brands of e-liquid that um, and that manufacturers could do more to um, you know to, 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 to improve their their, 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 their the, the packaging on, on, on the e-liquid most most of the you'll see that most of the e-liquids most of the uh, the liquids on the nicotine containing liquids that are sold under the EU TPD that we have to you know they all have to go through certain uh, criteria before they can be placed on the market here the vast majority of them actually all come in very plain packaging 
you know, with the health warnings in, in Irish and English on them. There are still a number, but not too many, but there are still a number of mm. uh, of of uh, e-liquids e- that are sold in, 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 in packaging that could, could certainly be more, more responsible. And again, this is where we welcome the meeting we had with, uh, with the Eric to uh, mm. Committee on Health yesterday. Um, we, we would like to develop guidelines and rules, you know, uh, over, it's over, hard, over this packaging. It's hard, it's hard not to conclude from what was said yesterday that whether you're aware of it at the time or not, and you aren't, as you've very clearly said, because you cannot verify somebody's age, but it's hard not to conclude that you're selling your products to minors. No, we're not selling our products to, mi- to, to, to minors. No, no, I, 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 I reject that. You know, and we, we have a physical shop here as well. I, my, my, uh, my, uh, my business here is, uh, is located, and anyone that comes into the well, you store said, you, I think you said yesterday that uh, it's possible, if not probable, that at times uh, children under the age of eighteen are buying your products online. I, look, I, we can't look. Children under eighteen, they will also buy cigarettes. They get alcohol. Mm. They get. You the, know, children under eighteen are minors, and that's what I mean. That you're, you're you're selling your products. It's hard not to conclude. You've just said it yourself that you are selling. You're most likely selling your products to minors. Minors, uh, d- despite your best efforts. I'm, yeah, and again, you know, I can't. You know, we can't be one. You know, we will do our very, very best not to sell to under 18s And I would absolutely believe that the vast, vast vast majority of our sales are all going to adult adult smokers or adult smokers who are looking to quit vaping I, c- I cannot you know I, I cannot say that, say that some of our product does not end up going to, to, to those under 18 but that's what I was putting to you yeah, yes, that's yeah, exactly no, the no, point I accept that but let's do everything in our power to, uh, to, 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 to even though I believe that that percentage is very very small at mm. the moment prohibit online sales to make it even if, if you stopped online sales that would stop it would it not uh, it, it, it wouldn't, no, it wouldn't, because uh, there's, there's lots and lots of uh, high, high street uh, shops, mm. and all, all it takes is someone who over 18 to go in and uh, with their ID, and then to buy for someone that's younger than 18. Okay. And in fact, I, I believe that that's where actually most of the, uh, the where where any underage sales that that's how the vast majority of those actually happen. Okay, the same, same same with alcohol. All right, Declan, I have to leave it there. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning. Declan Connolly, Director of the Irish Vape Vendors Association. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, if you work for minimum pay, you get paid 10.50 for every hour you work, unless you get paid 9.45, unless you get paid 8.40, unless you're paid 7.35 an hour, because there are different rates of minimum pay, and Paul Murphy, people before Profit TD, wants to change that. He's on the line. Good morning to you, and thanks uh, for joining us on the programme. Uh, you say that everybody should be on at least 10.50, or whatever uh, the uh, rate is uh, for adults. Good morning, Michael. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, we think it's, it's outrageous that there is discrimination against young workers purely on the basis of their age. Um, so like you said, uh, the fact that 17-year-olds or under can be paid 7.35 an hour while doing exactly the same work as the people next to them who are 20 or above and at least have to get the minimum wage rate of 10.50 an hour. I mean, 10.50 is by itself a poverty rate of pay. Uh, if you're a full-time worker on that, you come in significantly below the poverty line. Um, but you know, it really adds insult to injury to say that it's okay to pay young people even less than that. Why? I I mean, does it not give young people an opportunity to get jobs that they wouldn't get otherwise? And I think that's one of the main arguments for the lower rates of pay. 
No, I, I don't think so. Um, I think if you thought about you know, discrimination on any other grounds, imagine if there was discrimination based on sexuality or gender mm. or race, you know, people would rightly be absolutely outraged. But it, it also isn't okay to discriminate against people based on them being uh, young. Again, but, this isn't yeah. the case of like training positions or something like that. These are actual jobs that people are doing. No, no. I mean, did you have a, a part-time job yourself when you were a youngster growing up? I did. I, I don't yeah. remember if I got them in a wager or not. Or yeah, well, I, there, was no, there was no such thing <laughs> when I was growing up. But I mean, if you if you weren't getting a lower uh, rate of pay, you wouldn't have got a, a job lifting glasses or sweeping the floor or whatever the case may be. That that, that would have been my feeling on it. But you see, that, that's the perception, I think, for some people that, oh, look, these are people doing, um, you know, part-time jobs for pocket money. But for the, there's over 10,000 young people who are on less, who are legally on less than the minimum uh, wage. Um, and very, for very many of them, that's not the case. You, you could be a 19-year-old, you could be out of the family home, you could be attempting to rent, you could be attempting to support your family. And, you know, you can't go to your landlord and say, oh, I'm only 19, I'll be paying 90% of the market rate. Your landlord will be looking for 100%. And um, similarly, maybe you're working for a restaurant or a shop yeah. and they're paying you 90%, but they're not going to charge you 90% if you go into the shop and say you're, you're young. So your costs are exactly the same and your value to the employer is also exactly uh, the same. So why should you be treated any differently? Yeah, but I take it uh, in those circumstances, you're talking about full-time employment. Exactly. Mm. Uh, I mean, those people in full-time employment, they, they also, so if you're 19, in full-time employment, in service industry, let's say, where this will be most common, mm. um, you can be getting 9.45 an hour, which leaves you just, I mean, struggling in any circumstances, yeah. Yeah. Um, but obviously extremely struggling now with costs of energy and groceries and transport and rent all going through the roof. Okay. Is there an argument, though, to keep the lower rates or a lower rate for part-time work for people under 18, let's say? I, I don't think so. Um, mm. And the, the argument, as well as discrimination and workers' rights uh, in terms of those particular workers, I think is for all workers in the workplace. Mm. Um, it's like the argument you know, we've discussed before about JobBridge. Um, if employers have the potential to employ people legally yeah. on less than the bottom line floor minimum wage rate, well, then that can be used as pressure on all workers to, let's say, force them to accept mm. the 10.50. Maybe workers are saying, look, my, my work is worth more than that. I need more than that. I need 12 euros an hour. Mm. But the employer can turn around and say, well, if you don't accept your 10.50, I'll go and get someone in to do it at, at 7.35. So we, we think it's in the interest of all workers to ensure a basic floor. Yeah. Obviously, we think that floor should be raised significantly. But um, the but experience that a youngster gets, uh, and I'm really talking about young kids uh, who are doing a couple of hours of the weekend uh, while they're at school and that sort of uh, thing, because uh, a lot of them uh, don't seem to know they have two hands uh, and they need to be uh, on the job to learn how to think, let alone act physically in terms of carrying out some of those jobs. And it's very, very good experience that you can't buy. Sure, but I, I think that argument can also be made about people who are 20 or 21 no. or 22. Look, we, we know many people 42, who are yeah. Exactly, and, and, don't, and, yeah. and do have to learn mm. on the job to some extent. That is widespread and it isn't, it isn't about age. Um, so the idea that someone who comes in who has no experience who's 20 plus isn't legally entitled to at least the minimum wage. We, mm. we absolutely agree they should be. Yep. But for some reason, you treat someone under 20 in a way that's different, not mm. based on their yeah. experience, but purely based on uh, their I experience. mean, it's hard to argue with the principle of your bill, uh, but there is 
the uh, potential for the unintended consequence of extinguishing some jobs uh, because it just wouldn't be worth paying somebody ten fifty to sweep the floor or whatever the case may be. Yeah, but I, I, these people are doing work. Um, it's work that's required, otherwise the employer wouldn't be uh, paying for it. Um, uh, they do it for neighbours, though, and, you know, for their own kids, maybe, or friends of friends, or whatever. Well, I mean, often in those circumstances, the truth is, obviously it's not ideal, but the truth is, you know, those things will often be taking place on an informal uh, kind of grey or black economy mm. basis. So, you know, really where the minimum wage is going to be legally enforced is in formal contracts of uh, employment. Um, so I, I think when you're looking at, for example, the over 10,000 people identified in the most recent census figures, I would definitely say they are retail, service, restaurants, uh, predominantly. Um, and, you know, I think, look, if an, if an employer is in business, at the very least, they need to be able to pay people ten fifty an hour to do work. I, I don't think it's, it's really too much to ask of them. All right. Well, it makes for an interesting conversation and it'll make for very interesting reading if your bill is passed uh, for those particularly under the age of 18 uh, who get 7.35 an hour compared to that rate of 10.50. have to leave there. We're out of time and thank you for your time and for joining us as always. Paul Murphy, People Before Profit TD for Dublin South West, brings our programme to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.